0: Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the Managing Editor at Crosscut, and this week I've been thinking about justice. And yeah, I've been thinking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, too. It's hard not to. Since the world learned of the Supreme Court Justice's death, her story has been everywhere. Her early career as a litigator championing women's rights, changing so many laws that discriminated against women, and her tenure on the court where she became a champion of so many civil and human rights. Sometimes through persuasion and sometimes through dissent, she changed America. There's no doubt about it. Then on Friday afternoon, that all ended. And almost immediately, the battle for the future of the country heated up. Republican leadership said that it would attempt to fill the vacancy she left before the end of President Trump's first and maybe only term. And liberal America responded with outrage. And the outrage, it makes sense. Despite the rhetorical contortions from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell to justify the move, the Republican leadership is just clearly practicing high hypocrisy here. They're moving the goalposts. And it's really frustrating Because it's easy to imagine this as a moment of healing for the nation, where the Republican Party could respect the standard it set when it denied a vote on President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland for a Supreme Court post in the president's final year in office. Maybe that will happen when the party's rank and file weighs in. But if not, we're likely in store for the most bitter partisan fight this country has seen in a generation, maybe more. It'll play out in the halls of Congress. It'll play out in the streets and it will play out on social media. And if you're someone who views the Republican tactics here as a bad thing, you'll likely view social media in this moment as a good thing. After all, it's what allowed liberal Americans to quickly move from shock and mourning to massive fundraising that will no doubt affect the November election. And this isn't the only example of this. Movement politics on both the left and the right is reliant on social media. It's become how we do politics. Which is why it's so difficult to imagine a political solution to the problems that social media is creating. Why would anyone want to change something that's giving them an edge in an existential battle? Who would forfeit an opportunity for justice? Last week, I spoke about the problems that social media poses with technology journalist Jacob Ward. And if you listened to that interview, you probably caught a hint of skepticism from me when it came to the solutions he was prescribing. You'll hear that same skepticism this week in my conversation with Jeff Orlowski, the director behind the new documentary, The Social Dilemma. This is the second and final conversation in our very brief series about social media and its effects on our society. So Ward and Orlowski have different ideas about how we can divert our society from this destructive path that was unintentionally set out by Silicon Valley. But they both rely on a kind of collective action that just seems beyond us right now. It's such a vexing problem. One that the former tech executives Orlowski interviewed for his documentary don't have easy answers for. They've seen the good that can come from their creations, but they've also seen the bad. And they are adamant that we need to have a serious conversation about the bad. But will we? In my interview with Orlowski, which was recorded hours before Ginsburg's death, he and I discussed those bad things how covering climate change has helped him navigate this social media crisis, and where he finds hope. Then, later in the show, I'll bring Crosscut reporter Melissa Santos on to talk about QAnon, the conspiracy cult that emerged from social media and is now infiltrating electoral politics in Washington state. And I've got some programming notes here. Uh, next week, we'll be speaking with Terion Williamson, an associate professor of African-American and African Studies at the University of Minnesota, which, by the way, is my alma mater. Go Gophers! She'll join me to talk about Black in the Middle, a really powerful anthology about Black American life in the Midwest that she edited. And we've got a conversation with Michael Kirk on the Docket as well. He's the director of The Choice, the frontline special that explores the personal and political histories of the presidential candidates. I love The Choice, so I'm really looking forward to that. So if you have questions for either of those guests or thoughts on who else we might want to bring onto the podcast, please email me at talks at crosscut.com. Oh, and don't forget to mark October 28th on your calendar. That's the date of our live virtual event, where I'll be talking to Nicholas Kristof and Cheryl Wu Dunn about their latest book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope. Go to crosscut.com slash events for more information and to RSVP. Okay, on with the show. I'm on now with Jeff Orlowski. Jeff is an award-winning filmmaker whose work tackles some of the most difficult problems we face. You might know him for his environmental documentaries, Chasing Ice and Chasing Coral, but his latest film, The Social Dilemma, takes on another kind of crisis, the erosion of the social fabric spurred by the expansion of the tech companies who have been battling for our attention for the last decade. In the film, which is streaming right now on Netflix, Jeff questions former executives and employees of America's largest social media companies. He asks them about the effects that these companies have had on our minds and our societies. Their testimonials are woven together to deliver a unified message. The promise of social media has collapsed, and we are all in very big trouble. Near the end of the documentary, Tristan Harris, a former design ethicist for Google and really the soul of this documentary, explains the threat. It's not about technology being the existential threat, he says. It's the technology's ability to bring out the worst in society, and the worst in society being the existential threat. If technology creates mass chaos, outrage, incivility, lack of trust in each other, loneliness, alienation, more polarization, more election hacking, more populism, more distraction, and the inability to focus on the real issues, that's just society. And now society is incapable of healing itself and is just devolving into a kind of chaos. Jeff, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark. So you do an excellent job of detailing the threat we face in this documentary, but you ask another question here at the beginning of the film that's a little bit more difficult for the people you interview to answer. And that is, what is the problem? Yeah. So after making the film, what's your understanding of what the problem is here?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. My distillation now after talking to all of these people is that um, while these companies went in with good intentions, we have now built a technology infrastructure that is not aligned with humanity's needs. It's not in mm-hmm. society's best interests. I compare this uh, to the fossil fuel industry that started off with great optimism and hope and look at all the gr- amazing, wonderful things that these, uh, these things that we dig out of the ground can give us. And only years later do we recognize, oh shoot, there are some consequences here to, uh, to these things. And that's my, um, that is my distillation of this, that we are now, many years later, seeing the consequences of this business model, this micro-targeted, individualized, advertising-driven business model that is unique. It is nothing like any other model we've seen before. It does not compare to television or radio or newspapers. It's a totally new beast. And that this unique business model, when powered by machine learning, is causing these countless consequences to our society and our civilization. So I would say uh, that's, that's my takeaway. There are countless other nuanced aspects of this, which is why the project was so difficult to sort of wrap our heads around. There are arguments around surveillance capitalism. There are arguments about, around um, bias embedded in the codes of certain companies. Uh, all of these things are, are true as well. But for me, we were really trying to focus focus on the advertising-driven business model that's practiced at the social media companies.
0: So you really made your name as uh, an environmental documentarian, right? You you mm-hmm. made a couple of really acclaimed uh, documentary films yeah. uh, about the impacts of climate change. Is this a more complex problem than climate <laughs> change or less?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, it's funny you ask that. I feel like in some ways, uh, spending years talking with scientists about glaciers and, and our air and atmosphere and changing chemistry and then coral reefs and learning about all of that. In some ways, that was just warm up exercises for understanding uh, machine learning algorithms and the, the nuances of this issue. Um, I think also in many ways, our objective in these projects has been to take complicated science and to make them accessible so that the average person can wrap their heads around it. I think this is a very very complex issue. The problems are complex, the nuances are complex the solutions are complex um so it is really really difficult to to make this broadly accessible um but that that was the hope with the film um I do compare them both you know at the same level of societal risk I mean these are huge existential threats to civilization and so those are uh I think those are some of the reasons why it drew me into the these these stories
0: hmm. So last week, I interviewed a host of another documentary series that's out right now called Hacking Your Mind. So this is a a series that kind of does some of the same work that your documentary is doing, but really focuses on the user side and really kind of like how human brains are wired and what makes us susceptible to misinformation and other things like that, which you touch on in here. And I I bring it up because the conclusion of that series is it notes the difficulty that we're facing here, but it also, there's a little bit of hope. And that hope is really put into the idea that humans can hack their own minds, that there is a way for us to sort of govern the way that we're interacting with with um, with this, uh, with social media. You, your documentary also has a hopeful note at the end, but it really seems to be almost entirely focused on the idea that we need government regulation here. So I don't know which one of those things is less likely, uh, you know, Congress actually doing something about it or people actually, you know, exhibiting self-control. But mm. I do wonder, there is something that was brought up in your documentary that was dismissed largely, and that's the idea of, you know, Mark Zuckerberg said that the solution is that the AI will get better, and mm-hmm. that is sort of dismissed out of hand. But I do wonder, is there a technology fix here? I'm trying to imagine how yeah. we move forward, and, I, and the solutions that are being presented to me, I just don't see as as that likely, and I just wonder if there's a fix.
1: Uh, You're asking a great question. Let me start off with with part that you referenced here around the responsibility of the users and what falls on the users. Going back to this climate change analogy, it's like, I don't think it should be the responsibility of the public to solve climate change. Like you changing how you drive or whether or not, you know, your light bulbs, that's not going to solve climate change. All the individual actions in the world are not gonna address it at the scale that we need. So from that perspective, around another huge systemic issue that we face, I don't see how we address the needs of it without some sort of intervention. The companies don't seem to be wanting to change on their own, so we need some government to step in. That's the role of government is to protect the people from the risks that they don't even know about. In the case of this technology, my real hope is that the technologists change the software, that they recognize this business model is not good for society, and that we need to get off this business model. And they've convinced themselves in many cases that this is the business model that they want to use, from my perspective and my understanding, just because it's the most profitable for them. Like they give it away for free because that's how they make the most money. And that's kind of a sad, twisted reality that we, that we face here. Some of the studies, uh, some of the internal polling that I've heard of at Facebook says that most people wouldn't pay on average $2 a month for a subscription. So this is, this is kind of like somewhat speculative, right? But, but it's just indicating that maybe there's a question around how much value does this actually bring in people's lives? How much are people willing to spend on it? Um, We're willing to mindlessly scroll, but we're not willing to pay. So uh, to go back to your question around government regulation or what is, you know, what's needed in this scenario, like my ideal scenario is that the companies want to make change on their own. But if they don't, I feel like that is a perfect example of where government should step in or needs to step in.
0: I guess the, the, my it, it's just hard for me, and this is, you know, not um, not a, a criticism of, of your work, but um, it's more of a sign of of kind of how dysfunctional government in this country has become. I mean, and I think that yeah. climate change is really kind of the canary in the coal mine here. Is that right. if we if we're not able and look, I'm like I've been inside for a week and a half because there's smoke right. <laughs> outside right. of my house, right? And yet, you know, we still we still cannot really move in a significant way on climate change, and I so right. I just end up feeling hopeless about this stuff and and I wonder if you I mean do you feel the same way and I guess I'm just kind of trying to figure out like how are you you know navigating thinking about solutions here right I think it's we're hitting
1: a point in human history where we're really feeling the tensions of um, corporate capitalism and the control, the stranglehold that they have on government in many cases. You know, the fossil fuel industry has has been trying to um, sway Congress for such a long time such that we've made little progress. Google right now is the number one lobbyist in the U.S. Like they spend more money than anybody else. So we don't really hear about that. But Google has a huge influence over Washington. Um, Facebook also is spending a lot of money on lobbying efforts. So these huge Corporate organizations are, are trying to shape the laws in their favor for their business model. I get that from that perspective, but we need to fight back as well. And we need to fight for society's needs and society's interests. I think in both of these examples, um, we know that climate change is unsustainable, that the use of fossil fuels is an unsustainable reality. Um, this is my conclusion now, based on working on this film and talking to all these experts, the business model of micro-targeted advertising is as incompatible with society as the fossil fuel industry. You know, are, am I optimistic or not? You know, in some ways, my optimism comes from my pessimism in that things are going to get bad and then we're going to wake up. And I believe we're going to address climate change. It's just a matter of when and it's a matter of how much human suffering there is between now and when we inevitably do wake up because the alternative is just way too dire, right? And and so that's my hope on climate change. Uh, I hope that we have policymakers and I hope that the youth continue to speak out and put pressure on our existing legislators to say, look, we care about this. This is the youth saying it's our future. Don't mess with our future. Can you hear us, right? And how do we get the world to wake up to the realities of climate just like we need our politicians to wake up to the reality of the climate change of culture happening through these technology platforms that have disfigured our information environment. You know, these platforms have completely warped the way information is distributed. And in many ways, I would argue that they've broken down the the information ecosystem. Um, And that's going to take a long time to recover from. It's going to take a long time to heal from, just as it's going to take a long, if we snapped our fingers and we stopped burning fossil fuels, it's still going to take a long time to recover from, you know, the, the inertia of the mm-hmm. system. So the, these are not easy problems, right? These are, I, I don't know, I kind of joke sometimes that we we keep taking on these really, really depressing subjects. And, um, and our film <laughs> team is just, we go from one depressed scientist to another depressed scientist. But I think for me, it is, it is shedding light on these really, really big issues so that we can Identify the problems and wake up to the problems and then work
0: towards solutions so i want I want to take you in a little bit of a di- different direction here you uh, like you said, this is a big <laughs> complex sprawling problem, and you had to make a lot of choices about what to include and what not to include and what yeah. to focus on. a choice that I think you made is that Donald Trump does not show up in this documentary at all no visuals, uh, no mention of him yeah and I think I understand the choice, but it's still a, a curious one. I wonder mm-hmm. why did you make that decision?
1: Yeah, um, that's a really great question and a great observation. Um, he, he does not appear, appear in the film. My intention there was it doesn't matter what your political beliefs are or what your political persuasion is. This is still affecting you and all the people around you. You know, there, there are some people on our team that really wanted to put footage of Donald Trump in, and we spent a lot of time talking about it. it it's something where... I was wanting to keep this as politically neutral as possible for everybody to look at it and say, wait a second, why do I believe what I believe? Where am I getting my information from? I I lean on the left side of the political persuasion. When we were working on this film, I started to hear about Russian content that was being spread online about anti-fracking. And I was like, I have a thoughts on anti-fracking like I, I don't I'm not particularly a fan of fracking and then I was questioning and wondering wait a second where am I getting my information from and this is this has nothing to do with the legitimacy or arguments around fracking the point I'm trying to make is Russia was putting things out into the world that I might have been seeing for political manipulation purposes You know, there was a great piece on the New York Times um, a couple years ago that was basically like, can you spot the Russian troll? And they showed authentic posts and fake posts. And you Mm -hmm. scroll through this article and you're like, I can't, like, I don't (laughs) know which is which. How do I know what's authentic or what's manipulated? Um, There are great pieces, uh, um, this woman uh, from a UK research institute put out this thing around the seven types of misinformation. Um, And she says, you know, most fake news isn't fake and isn't news. And it is just misleading in some ways, or here's a real piece of footage that we miscaptioned intentionally or accidentally, or it's taken out of context, or fill in the blank. And so somebody sees that, and then they repost and they repost. And now we've like removed ourselves from you know the truth and nobody's fact checking any of this. And now something that was maybe an intentional or accidental post has now drifted and gone viral and affected the way people see the world. Like that's just the reality of what's happening through these platforms now. And and in large part because of how they were designed. These platforms were designed for virality. They were designed for reducing friction. They wanted to make it as easy for things to spread as fast as possible. Move fast and break things was Facebook's motto. And journalism has friction designed into the system intentionally. Mm-hmm. It's like a good journalist is going to go. They're going to review. They're going to talk to multiple sources. They're going to fact check. They're going to see if this the thing that this person said, is it accurate or not? And that's all friction in the system that helps create better information. But now you have a system... On these platforms, that really incentivizes none of that. If there is some crazy event that happens, the first thing that fills that news void is going to get the first hits. We've really change the way our information is consumed and distributed and digested. This, once again, this is not an easy solve, just as complex yeah. as climate change, right? You put more carbon dioxide and greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, you see the consequences all around the planet in countless different ways. We've always had hurricanes, but they're getting bigger and stronger and worse, right? right? And so we've always had misinformation. We've always had manipulative actors, but they're using these tools in a way that are making them go
0: supercharged. And you and you and you point this out, you know that it's it's about seeding chaos. It's not about um, supporting one party or the other. But I just want to stay on this point for a bit because I think it's it's interesting, you know. Here we have a president whose election owes a lot to the attention extraction model, which is sort of at the at the core here, of the problem. And and since then, he's openly courted social media users that are trading in you know belligerent and destructive misinformation, and he's weaponized the idea of fake news. I mean, policy and party aside, and accepting the sort of the premise that that we need some sort of government action to uh, contain this issue, isn't the election really a pivotal moment that determines like how much more difficult it's going to be to solve this problem? Maybe not from your perspective, though I'm interested in that, but did any of your subjects talk about this, about how they're viewing this decision that's coming up?
1: I think a lot of our subjects and a lot of the people that I've met and spoke to are just worried about the state of democracy. All right and that these platforms have become tools to warp and manipulate democracy and free elections so we just learned this week uh that a facebook whistleblower came out and and shared new information from inside the company about seeing big political manipulation happening on the platform um, that wasn't getting the attention and wasn't getting really dealt with inside Facebook. Um, Mm. You know, we're referencing Facebook a bit, but these things are happening at a bunch of these different companies, right? This is just how can um, a a bad actor leverage all of these different systems? It's a really, really disarming reality that we live in right now. Just another thing to bring up, it's like President The president of the United States, we know, is a very active Twitter user. Nobody knows what the president of the United States sees every day on his Twitter feed. We can all see the billboards outside the White House. We can all see um, Fox News or whatever channels that we suspect he's watching. We can all have a shared conversation around these different public mediums. Um, And we can agree or disagree. We can have conversation and discourse about that. No, like literally, nobody knows what the President is seeing on his feet. It's customized just for him. Even if somebody were to go and recreate the followers, the exact people that he follows and and uh, and build out a mirrored account, it would not reflect what President Trump is seeing at what times in what order that the algorithm is just feeding. So mm-hmm. it's, this is just a, an example of um, these companies have such incredible power, asymmetric power. They have, as, as one of our subjects in the film, Roger McNamee says, we are all living in our own Truman show. We've got 2.7 billion Truman shows going on out there where I'm in my own little Galapagos island of thought. And you're on your own Galapagos Island. And we're both drifting further and further away from each other as the algorithms just keep rehearsing and learning what works on me, which is different than what works on you, which is what different than works on President Trump. And so each of us are being fed a different story on a daily basis. Now, add that up over a decade, right? I've gone through my decade of mind warp and you're in your decade of mind warp. And each of us now, you know, just like with speciation in nature, when, when Mm. two species drift further and further apart, they are incompatible with each other. They can't mate anymore, right? Like our ideas are no longer compatible with each other. Um, And I think that's what I'm, I'm most, startled by, you know, I have family members and friends that, you know, I disagree with politically. And, but I feel like a decade ago, we used to have really good civil conversation about some of these issues. And it feels harder and harder to have Mm -hmm. civil conversation about things that we disagree with. I've been telling a bunch of people, what you can do is a reality swap take your phone and pass it to your friend and take their phone and, hey, look at my huh. Twitter feed. Look at, Let me see your Twitter feed. Let me see what YouTube is feeding you and this is what YouTube is feeding me. And then we can have a conversation of like, well, these are my facts that I'm exposed to. What are your facts that you're exposed to? And how do we know what's true or what's not true? And, alright, let's do some investigating. Let's do some fact-checking. Let's figure out, you know, where is the truth of the matter? Let's go to the fact-checking website. And my hope is that this film can help people wake up from you know, this matrix-like reality that we've been living in now and startle people into recognizing th- there's something inherently problematic with customized news, right? The This very yeah. notion of personalized information streams is, is very, very problematic in my mind.
0: Okay. So I've just got one, one final question yeah, for you. The documentary is doing well. I've had four different people from different parts of my life tell me I have to watch it in the last week. Uh, <laughs> awesome. And um, But I'm just curious, what does success for this documentary oh. look like to you? In some ways,
1: I feel like, you know, just the fact that it's really hit a zeitgeist and people are talking about it, that is success in and of itself. Um, my real hope is that we have meaningful conversations around this, that people can hopefully use the film as a, as a wake-up call and maybe think about their own usage in a different way think about how they relate to technology think about you know who do you disagree with politically and can you can you create some bridges um, my hope would be that politicians see it and think you know what does meaningful regis- legislation look like my hope would be that technologists see it and have real important conversations within the companies around like, What do we need to do? What can we do? How do we fix this? How do we get off of this business model? And it's going to be a long and challenging road, but that's what we need to do because that's the right thing to do for society. And that would be like, that's a long shot, right? That is a pie in the sky dream, maybe, um, to think that these companies would flip from a very, very profitable model into uh, some other system. But that is really... the the most important and most necessary thing. You know, we need the fossil fuel industry to change and to become an energy industry and to provide regenerative energy. We need our technology companies to move off of this extraction model and to become regenerative technology companies. What's actually creating stronger ties, stronger relationships, which actually what is building meaningful civil discourse, um, productive conversations. It might come from a complete rethinking within these companies. It might come from completely brand new companies. I mean, ultimately, this is just code, right? It's just like, a couple hundred people wrote lines of code and the, that code is now puppeteering society. We can change the code. We can change the companies. I mean, MySpace and AOL seemed like they were going to be around for a really long time and they completely <laughs> disappeared. And, mm-hmm. and there's no guarantee that, that, you know, Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube are going to be the ones that stand a test of time. You know, I want a social media platform that makes me feel better when I'm done using it. <laughs> right? Could that be the goal? If we can go down that path, I think it's going to be a much better society for all of us.
0: Hmm. All right, that's Jeff Orlowski. You can watch his film, The Social Dilemma, on Netflix right now. Jeff, thank you so much for giving me some time today and talking about your work. Yeah, thank you so much, Mark.
2: Hi, my name is Mason Bryant, and I'm the associate editor of Crosscut Opinion, We are surrounded by two massive and complicated stories right now. Knowing what to think about the pandemic and the protests can feel like a full time job. That's why over the last few months, Crosscut Opinion has tried to bring analysis and argument to bear on these history defining events. With help from a roster of really smart writers, I'm working every day to introduce new ideas and maybe a few old ones into the public conversation. If nothing else, we hope the op-eds and essays we publish can help you think for yourself about this tumultuous moment and how it's transforming society. All of this commentary is free for you, but it does have very real costs. As a nonprofit news and opinion source, we count on support from our readers, viewers and listeners like you to continue producing the stories and conversations that keep you informed and engaged with your community. If this work is valuable to you and you would like to support our journalism, go to crosscut.com donate. Okay. Back to the show.
0: I've got Melissa Santos here now. Melissa is the politics reporter here at Crosscut. Recently, she reported on the emergence of QAnon, the online conspiracy cult that supports President Trump and promotes the false claim that a cabal of elites is trafficking and cannibalizing children. Okay, Melissa, let's start here. What is it exactly that QAnon adherents believe?
3: It's a sort of complex question in a way because there's a bunch of different arms of this conspiracy theory. But the main thrust that kind of unites people as being QAnon specifically and what's concerning to a lot of people is the belief that Democrats and celebrities and I guess the Pope and a bunch of global elites are running this um Child sex trafficking ring and abusing children and worshiping Satan as they do it. and are some people who are adherents also believe that they are sacrificing children and drinking their blood. Um, but that's a pretty extreme belief.
0: Uh, okay, you know you talk to some experts in your story and you and you write that they view this as being something different than previous conspiracy theories right? How is this different?
3: Well, uh, partly because of just how extreme it is. There's that. Um, But it's also something that's happening right now, right? I mean, a lot of the conspiracy theories that people have are about 9-11 was an inside job or uh, JFK was not really murdered by Lee Harvey Oswald. Those are things that are all in the past, right? So you can't go back in time to do anything about whoever else was involved in JFK's assassination. But this is happening now. So the worry is, well, people might actually be prompted to take action. If you really believe that satanic baby-eating pedophiles are ruling our government, once not you maybe feel like you were required or to jump in and stop it? So that's one of the big differences that people see with QAnon versus some other third conspiracy theories.
0: Hmm. So – Your story is about how QAnon has spread into electoral politics in Washington state. When did it become clear to you that that this had happened?
3: Well, it's funny because it started and I heard about this, the Squim mayor. And, you know, I kind of cover statewide politics. If it's just one mayor somewhere, that's probably not good. But am I going to do a whole story about it? Maybe not. Right. Right. But then, you know, it became clear there was some reporting from eastern Washington, um, from the Inlander, the all Weekly in Spokane, that that made it pretty clear that the person who is going to replace Matt Shea, who is a very controversial legislator who was accused of participating in domestic terrorism, he's out, but this guy who's going to replace him most likely is like spouting QAnon stuff. So that's kind of made me think, okay, this is not just mayors. It's not just a couple city council people. There's more. And there actually are are other legislators as well who uh, are legislative candidates who were sharing this stuff online. And there's actually a couple I think I missed, but I wasn't 100 percent certain. So there's there's at least a handful now. And so that seemed like a thing but to me. Hmm.
0: So, these candidates aren't exactly declaring an allegiance to QAnon. They don't all identify themselves as, as really QAnon followers. They seem to be kind of picking and choosing what parts of the lies that, that this movement promotes, um, the ones that, that they want to put out there. You spoke to one of them, Amber Crayback, she's a Republican state house candidate. What did she tell you about how she views QAnon and, and how does she navigate this?
3: Well, I want to have a caveat where I'm not sure people are being truthful when they talk to reporters about these things. Mm, so there's that. Right. Q is a, the person that QAnon followers are latching onto, who's posting stuff anonymously on message boards, who says they are a government insider of some sort that knows all this stuff about this internal cabal that's running the child sex trafficking ring and all this corruption and evil. So Crayback says she follows Q's posts very carefully and then uses those as a, as a jumping off point to do her own research. It's like pieces of a puzzle that she kind of puts together. But it took me a while to get to this point, but when I asked her, do you believe that there are sat- satanic pedophiles running the government and that Democrats are, you know, running this child's sex trafficking ring, she said that she hasn't seen evidence for that. So- I asked, why would you want to associate with people who do believe that then? Because I believe she has a Q decal like on her car and I didn't get a great answer, I guess. But she said that the people she talks to about Q anon stuff online don't talk about that.
0: Are they all Republican candidates?
3: So the ones in our state that I've identified or other reporters have identified are all Republicans. Um, elsewhere, uh, there are some, a lot of congressional candidates or a handful of congressional candidates as well. And most of those are Republicans on the national scene as well.
0: You spoke with Republican leadership in the state. What, what do they think of these candidates and uh, that they're they're sort of courting these ideas?
3: J.T. Wilcox, who's the state House Republican leader in Washington, told me, you know, these two candidates in particular I talked to, uh, Rob Chase and Amber Crayback, are not people that he recruited to run for office or that the you know House Republicans sought out to run. They kind of just filed for office on their own. So he made that distinction. I mean, he, he did say he doesn't think that this is taking over the party in any way. And, and some of the academics also told me it still seems pretty fringe. So that I think is true. At the same time, he was pretty disturbed about some of the stuff he's been seeing online in terms of conspiracy theories. I'm not sure if he is aware that some of the stuff might be connected to QAnon. He talked kind of unprompted about anti-Semitic stuff he's been seeing circulate online that's like old Nazi era propaganda. You know, some of that really does have a strong resemblance to what QAnon supporters believe in terms of this global cabal of bankers and media and Democrats and government and figures who are controlling the world.
0: You know, so that's what the Republican leader is saying. But, um, but what about some of the other people that you spoke to? I mean, we know that these ideas are spreading, but is mm-hmm. QAnon actually a political force? Can they get someone elected?
3: I think that does depend on turnout a little. If you have a really strong, motivated core of people, then that can kind of, I think, show up a little bit in election results. At the same time, you know, one of the academics I talked to said when he does polling on conspiracy theories, QAnon is polling at like 5% support, right? That's pretty low is what he was saying. So, I guess the thought is right now we're not seeing it take over voters' minds. I mean, that's something I try to be careful not to claim in our piece, that it's not like voters are necessarily all being overrun by QAnon. But it's still kind of concerning that we have people in government that it might be using their platform to spread this stuff wider. And I think that's kind of where um, things may be at right now, where – it's not that common. I don't think that it's there's some sort of huge Republican Party takeover by QAnon at this moment, but things are seeping in in a way that could that be the future? I think that's kind of the question where people are that people are worried about right now. Hmm.
0: All right, that's Melissa Santos. You can read her story about QAnon in Washington State and her continuing coverage of the 2020 election at crosscut.com. Melissa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Melissa and to Jeff Orlowski for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Rusty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to Crosscut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the Crosscut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com slash talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode.